I think this has to be a, a multi and interdisciplinary effort because there's so much. And this this comes up often, you know, back to the question of traditional knowledge and and working with with some of the indigenous communities of their way of seeing the world is not nicely divided into different academic disciplines and university departments. And I've had these before. We've had a workshop in a community and talked about what's happening and what kind of studies would be important. And let's say you have some flip charts and you come up with a list of 10 things. It's very easy for me to look at that list and say, yeah, numbers one through eight, I know nothing about, but number nine, that's, I know something, let's work on number nine. Well, that's not really fair. We've just ignored the eight things that the community said were more important. I don't know much about them. So I can either try to shift the conversation to number nine, or what often takes quite a bit more effort is to figure out who knows something about items one through eight and how we can get them involved in the conversation and and where we go from there. Welcome to From the Field, a podcast vlogging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. In this episode, I speak with Henry Huntington, owner of Huntington Consulting and the Arctic Science Director for the Ocean Conservancy. Henry focuses on conservation efforts as well as human-environment interactions and traditional knowledge in the Arctic. As a kid, Henry always had an interest in science, particularly in space. But it wasn't until he took time off between high school and college that he found his passion for the polar regions. I think as a preteen kid or maybe into my early teen years, I was fascinated with astronomy and thought about being an astronomer Then got into chemistry and physics and so on and you know, stayed interested in those topics and took the usual high school classes and so on. I then took a gap year between high school and college and worked in the Antarctic at McMurdo Station, which is a, a logistics base, but also a research base. So I got to spend some time with scientists down there who were studying fish and seals and glaciers and other things. And that was all fascinating to me took a detour in college in that I majored in English, but was still very interested in things polar, and at that point, especially Antarctic. I wrote a senior thesis about Ernest Shackleton, the British Antarctic explorer, discovered that there was a a graduate program in polar studies, which sounded just perfect for me, and then thought, well, I should see the Arctic too. It's polar studies, it's not just Antarctic studies, and uh, got a job in what was then Barrow, what is now Utkjavik, on the north coast of Alaska, counting bowhead whales. That put me out in the field on a biology project, got me exposed to people studying whales in, in various ways, and then, crucially, to the Inupiaq Eskimo hunters who were hunting the whales and also know a lot about the whales. And it was that combination of what the scientists were doing, but also the deep knowledge of the Inupiaq that, I suppose, really really got me excited and, and turned my head from the Antarctic to the Arctic. So after working on the, the whale census in Barrow and and learning about what the whalers knew. I, I did a, both a master's and a doctorate looking at traditional subsistence hunting in northern Alaska and the way that the wildlife management system did or didn't accommodate traditional practices and so on. After finishing my doctorate, wound up back up on the North Slope and had a job with the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission and went around to what were then nine whaling villages and was one of those cases where I was just smart enough to have a good idea and time to act on it beforehand, I thought, well, I should just take a map of each area with me so they can introduce me to their area and where they go whaling and things like that. And so we'd show up in the village and we'd have a meeting with the whaling captains and discuss various things. And then at the end of the meeting, I'd unfold or unroll the map on the table and say, you know, just tell me about your area. This is a a one to 250,000 scale topo map. And it was like a little spark. People were eager to get around the map and start pointing to things, telling me the local place names for significant spots and landmarks along the way, show me where they went, where the whales came from, how the ice formed and where the ice edge usually was and other local features. And it was just a fascinating thing. And I got back to Barrow at the end of that trip and 
talked to a couple of the scientists and said, hey, has anybody documented all this? I mean, these, these guys have so much to say. Have we, has anybody recorded this? And the answer was, well, not really. Been a lot of work of that kind in Barrow itself, but not so much in the other villages. In the usual way of things, that did not lead directly to you know, a project about bowhead whales, but led indirectly actually to a project about beluga whales, though so different kind of whale, but same waters, and then gradually to more and more research along those lines of trying to learn from the hunters about what they know about marine mammals, about sea ice, about weather, about other topics, and then trying to understand how to combine that with science. And then that led to uh, also to work with Inuit Circumpolar Council, an Inuit organization spanning the four countries in which Inuit live from Russia to Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. Through them and getting involved with the Arctic Council, a high-level intergovernmental forum of the eight Arctic countries, working on conservation of flora and fauna, so traditional knowledge fit in very well there, as well as a range of other topics. Environmental contaminants was a a very big deal at that point. Sustainable development was a a rising topic, uh, emergency preparedness, etc. So that got me exposed to to things in the, the international research and policy arena. So things went on from there. The power of human-environment interaction and traditional knowledge can be immense when approached and assessed in combination with scientific research. But what exactly constitutes a human-environment interaction? Henry explains that it can be as simple or as complicated as one would think, and they're almost always nuanced by region. So human-environment interactions to me is a very broad category of just ways that people interact with their environment, and that can be you know, a simple matter of stepping outside when it's raining and getting wet. It can also be the deeper interactions and connections that we have with a place that we gather over time. So if if you've lived in one place for a long time, you get to know the area, you get to know the, the environment, you get to understand it. If you're part of a family or a culture that's been in the same place for a long time, you've probably picked up a lot of things from your parents, your aunts and uncles, your grandparents, and so on, you know, family, friends, and, and others, all of which constitutes a body of knowledge about that place and about what happens there. And in the, in the case especially of a community and a culture being in the same place, say an indigenous culture, indigenous community or, or settlement, this knowledge can have been built up over many, many generations and can go back a very long way. And that's when we get into the realm of traditional knowledge, that this is knowledge that's been accumulated over time, typically shared within a group. There are various ways to share it. It can be through stories, it can be through practice, it can be through just following people along and seeing what they see, all of which constitutes a cohesive understanding of how the world works where you are, which is necessary for survival. If you're in the Arctic, what kind of ice can you travel on safely and what kind of ice should you avoid? It can be things about how to get food and other material for your family. Where are you going to catch the fish? When do they come? What does it take to approach a seal or a caribou, etc., etc.? And aspects of stewardship or looking after the environment. What does it take not just to take a fish this year, but to make sure there are going to be fish again next year? If people have been traveling the land and, as I said, listening to the stories, watching their forebears travel and picking things up, they're going to have an intimate awareness of the landscape and all the features in it. If you take a place like Barrow, Utkiakvik on the North Slope, the land around there is pretty flat. There are little little streams and, and little lakes, but in general, it's a pretty flat land. It's really hard to navigate or very easy to get lost if you don't know what you're looking for. But if you've grown up there, going out on the land all the time, seeing things, having your dad and your mom and your grandparents point out key features to you and other things, you, know, you get to know it very, very well. You know, in much the same way that if you're in a new city, you know, many of the streets will look the same and it's very easy to get turned around and lost and wonder where you are. If you've grown up there, you know, you know, you know your way around and, and don't even need to stop to think about it. 
For the most part, it's a two-way street when it comes to sharing information about the Arctic. Since scientists aren't usually in the Arctic region for 12 months out of the year, the collected information that the communities have fill in certain gaps in areas of research. Conversely, local communities are able to use scientific information to assess and direct their daily tasks in a safe and efficient manner. It's a kind of relationship that can't be taken for granted, since it's beneficial to policymaking, which ultimately protects the wildlife and local communities. So what we get from people in the communities we work with is a a huge amount of insight into what's happening and things that you might not notice if you weren't intimately familiar with the landscape or you might not notice if you weren't out there often. One of the criticisms or limitations of a lot of Arctic research is that it's a huge amount is done in the summer. Understandably, it's warmer. It's access in some ways is easier. Also happens to coincide with the you know the academic summer for so for those at universities, this is the time when they're not teaching classes and and having all of those responsibilities. You know we know a fair bit about what's happening in the summer. Of course, the Arctic isn't sitting still for the other nine months of the year, and people who live there are out there all winter long too and able to see what's going on and and to tell us about things that are happening in the wintertime that we might not otherwise know about. So that's been a huge help. That includes things like observations of birds and marine mammals at, at times of the year that are different from what they used to be, changes in sea ice, weather, snow conditions, etc. And so that's been, in terms of the information coming from the indigenous communities to the, the scientific world, that's a big help. The other thing that's that's very important is to understand all the ways that indigenous people have of, of dealing with these kinds of changes. The Arctic is nothing if not variable, so even if we're seeing a big trend in the way things are in sea ice and snow and, and so on now, even in the sort of the, the old days, the baseline period we refer to when things when we didn't see such a big trend, there were big changes from year to year, and so people had to be used to adjusting and adapting to as as conditions would go. And so understanding how people have done that is is very helpful, both in terms of understanding what changes might mean and also understanding what kind of policies might be effective. It's easy to imagine that you could set up a policy that captured a you know the ideal year or, or one particular year and might be thoroughly inappropriate for another year. So for example, a, a hunting season. You know, we say, well, the caribou generally seem to come through in September, so that'll be the hunting season. Okay, that works really well, except for the year when they show up in August or they don't come until October. And if you haven't, if the policies don't accommodate the flexibility that people have always displayed and that they need to deal with this environment, you, know, you can wind up with a policy or regulatory measure that could be far more constraining than, than the environmental changes. So that's something that is, is important for us to understand. As far as information coming from the scientific community to local people, a lot of what is people find very helpful is to get information. I mean, they're not looking to me for advice on how to travel on sea ice, but if they can have access to, say, satellite imagery of sea ice, that can be a huge help in figuring out where the ice is, where they might want to go hunting, what they have to look out for. Similarly, this, the weather project in Clyde River, we have four weather stations that are somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, say, 25 to 100 miles away from the community. And for a lot of people, if they're planning a trip out on the land, they'll go to our website and we'll be able to look and see what the weather is at these different locations. It comes up by satellite link and it, the readings should be within the last hour or two, so they're fairly current. And so you can see, you know, hey, I'm interested in going north. Well, look up there and see, has the, has the wind picked up? Has it looked like something's a storm is coming down from the north and that wouldn't be a good place to go? Or does it look pretty nice? And hey, that makes sense. It, w- it would be a good time to, to travel that direction. And, and we know from, from talking to people in Clyde River and for looking at the, you know, the analytics on the website that a lot of people are making a lot of use of those, those weather stations and that information, which is terrific. 
in addition, you know, people who spend a lot of time out on the land and sea are very interested in it and love learning the chance to learn more. So I've had plenty of opportunities with folks in communities to talk about the things they've learned from other scientists that they've learned from taking part in research projects that they've learned from reading on their own or from websites and so on. And they seem very keen and learning from what the scientists have seen. And, you know, that's very gratifying to see that I mean, this pretty common human trait of curiosity and to see the, you know, the ability to make those kinds of relationships and link. When I was in Utkiakvik talking to a bunch of hunters about things, people were discussing the water salinity on the bottom of the ocean and the way the wind would affect the currents over here and what that would do for the krill that the whales eat and various other things that obviously had developed from a number of research projects and then also in combination with what people see from being out in the water so much. Even though these beneficial relationships have been sprouting over the last few decades through cooperative work between scientists like Henry and indigenous communities, it wasn't always this way. Throughout colonial history, many early explorers often backed financially with the finest equipment and travel arrangements weren't interested in what indigenous people had to say, despite their years of expertise. Unfortunately, today, the remnants of colonialism still lingers within academic communities and mentalities. So the colonial history of the Arctic is certainly a huge part of its history and, and of its present. I've had in a number of conversations with people about the way that those colonial legacies still play out. The situation I described of mutually beneficial relationships around science, I mean, that's the ideal, and we, we do see those from time to time. And we also still see some real challenges and shortcomings. We were talking about many of those things, and it was, uh, in some ways, an, an interesting mixed message, in other ways, maybe a consistent message from folks from the communities along the coast of northern and western Alaska that, as one woman put it, she said, I'm researched out. So in, in a way, that makes it sound like, okay, enough, I'm done, I don't want to talk to you guys. In the other way, you know, she was saying, look, what we really want, we want to be at the, in the middle of this. It's the big difference between research being done on you or to you versus research being done with you. And what she was really calling for was research being done with the people of, of her community. You know, not yet another person coming in and asking many of the same questions and, and going away again and <laughs> never being heard from, building up those kinds of relationships where we become real partners. And I think we've seen in the field of traditional knowledge a, a big shift from the early days. If you go back to the early explorers and, and scientists in the Arctic, many of them relied on, on native guides to get them around, to procure food for them, etc. Et you know, they would have had a much harder time if they'd had to do those kinds of things by themselves. How often they got credit for the amount of skill and so on that went into that is always a very good question. For myself, I always have to either laugh or scratch my head when you read some of the accounts of the early explorers about how hard it was and how much work they put in. And I have no doubt, I mean, I've traveled those lands by various means too, and it's, it does take a lot of effort. And yet the explorers were typically young men, presumably in prime of physical condition from a society affluent enough to send them halfway around the world and provision them and so on. And the people who were with them were not just a few young men who were out there for a summer or winter of some exertion, but an entire community. You had husbands and wives and kids and grandparents and everybody all traveling together. So the conditions that were immensely challenging for the young men in peak physical condition were the same conditions that were being faced by everybody in the, the native group that they were traveling with. And nobody in, say, Europe or the, the lower 48 thought of sending you know, explorers north with their grandparents and with their little kids and everything else too. What the native guides had to do, in addition to looking after the explorers, was also be taking care of their whole extended family and their community and doing all the things they needed to do to get ready for the next season. You don't usually see a whole lot of credit being given for how much effort that took and how much skill and patience and so on was, was required. 
Over time, a much-needed shift began as several researchers started to accept that they couldn't have made their journey without local knowledge-based contributions. And for the last 20 years, Henry has seen an even greater shift in the scientific field, generally accepting the co-authorship from an individual with a rich experiential background rather than an academic one. Henry remains optimistic about the move in the right direction, despite the fact that academia still has a long way to go when it comes to crediting traditional knowledge and solidifying an inclusive rhetoric. What we see if we move into the, say, the 20th century, there are a few cases. Uh, Lawrence Irving was a, a researcher who worked with Simon Pontiac and others in, on the North Slope or in the, in the Brooks Range. And Lawrence in the 1950s was including Simon as a co-author on papers. You know, nowadays, we see people saying, well, you know, you really need to acknowledge what people have done. Well, there were people like Irving who were well ahead of their time in, in doing exactly that, just mentioning briefly in the acknowledgments that, hey, somebody else was up here and helped me or even naming them, but including someone like Simon as an actual co-author. And more recently, I've gotten some pushback from time to time about including hunters or others I've worked with as, as co-authors. I think that's shifted a bit in the 20 plus years that I've been doing this, but early on, you know, that was not assumed that the local people whose knowledge it was I was reporting. I mean, I didn't generate any of this knowledge myself. I was just the conduit for what people had to say. But oftentimes I'd get some pushback on, well, you know, they're not the scientists. They shouldn't be the co-authors. And so I think, again, that's shifting some, but we're still certainly seeing this notion of there's a, a distinction between those who've had the training and the credentials and those who don't. Inevitably, some questions of how well we understand the systems. Are we, we're still using a pretty much the scientific and academic system as the paradigm for research rather than an indigenous system. And so what that means is that the people and communities have to adapt themselves or adjust their thinking to fit into the academic mode of doing things rather than us academically trained people having to learn how to understand things and, and do things in, in the indigenous way. And so there are still aspects of colonialism that are there, even as we're making some progress by, by bits and pieces towards, a, I think, a, a more equal or a more equitable relationship. I can't speak for other people, but what I've tried to do is give them a chance to speak for themselves. On two more recent projects, uh, one about sea ice and one about bowhead whales, my approach has been to, to find people in the indigenous communities and ask them to write something, you know, which then becomes, a, to my mind, the heart of these two book chapters. So I'll write a little bit of an introduction and a little bit of you know, discussion and conclusions at the end and include some other things and you know, refer to other studies and do the usual, the usual academic things. But then the, the core of the chapter are, are a series of essays of people explaining things in their own words rather than having it filtered through me. You know, the essays we've gotten have been just terrific and, and very powerful and you know, much more meaningful and moving than anything I could have written secondhand. In addition to his independent research work on human-environment interactions, Henry is the Arctic Science Director at the Ocean Conservancy, where he's committed to the conservation of the Arctic Ocean. This is where Henry can stretch his scientific and indigenous knowledge legs to explore which parameters will create an effective policy on ocean use. In doing so, indigenous communities and wildlife are able to continue their way of life without the adverse effects of shipping routes and pollution. Ocean Conservancy is a conservation organization, and what we would like to see are healthy oceans and healthy communities that depend on those oceans. We work around the U.S. and in other parts of the world. I'm part of the Arctic team looking a lot at Alaska, but also working with Canadian colleagues working in Greenland in the, and also in the, the high seas of the central Arctic Ocean beyond any country's jurisdiction. 
we want to be very careful that we have no authority and no desire to try to speak on behalf of Native communities. But the community interests are very important to us for the organization and to, to all of us who work on the Arctic individually. We don't want to do things that would wind up being against the interests of the Native communities when that's consistent with, with a healthy ocean. Among other things, we work, say, on promoting good governance of shipping through the Arctic. So we'd been working with, with the Coast Guard and, and with some of the Native organizations in the region and with others to try to figure out if ships are going through the Bering Strait, how can you manage that in a way that we reduce the risks to both to life and limb, also to food security. My job in this has been to help connect the conservation work we're doing with the science and traditional knowledge that are available to inform that work. So in other words, how do we take advantage of what's known, of what the latest findings are, of what people who live in the region have to say, and make sure that the things that we're asking for will make sense in, in that regard. Alaska native villages and wildlife refuge areas flank either side of the Bering Strait, and the waters are teeming with wildlife, which use the strait as a migratory path. This same path also happens to be used by shipping vessels, which travel between the Arctic and the Pacific. It's easy to imagine how this is a recipe for potential conflict when it comes to the conservation of wildlife and the protection of native people. So if you're moving from the Pacific Ocean up into the Arctic, you'll come through the Bering Strait and then eventually through the Bering Sea, one of the world's richest fishing grounds, and then eventually up to Bering Strait, which is about, I think, 54 miles across between Russia and Asia on the west side of the strait and Alaska and North America on the east side with the Diomede Islands in between, Big Diomede, which is, belongs to Russia, and then two or three miles away, Little Diomede, which is part of Alaska and has a small Inupiaq village on it. That's the channel or the bottleneck for getting from the Bering Sea and the Pacific Ocean to the Chukchi Sea and the Arctic Ocean. So that's any ships that want to go from the Pacific to the Arctic will go through the Bering Strait. It's the path for lots and lots of marine mammals. So bowhead whales go spend their winter typically in the northern Bering Sea and then migrate through the Chukchi and into the Beaufort Sea and over to Canada in the summer. Lots of seals do that. Walrus, their polar bears moving through. Gray whales come all the way from Baja, California, up the western coast of North America, around Alaska, through the Bering Strait and into the Arctic. Increasingly, we're seeing fin whales, humpback whales, minke whales, killer whales, and so on. All of them coming through the Bering Strait if they're going to get to the Arctic. And you also have home to millions of seabirds. St. Lawrence Island, the Diomedes, other areas with cliffs and good sites for rookeries and so on, there are just full of a huge number of seabirds and seabird species also migrating through this strait. There are fish that go through and so on. So in terms of marine life, it's a place of stunning abundance. And you have Yupik and Yupiak and Chukchi cultures on on either side of the Bering Strait who have been living off of the sea and, and traveling on those waters and trading back and forth and so on for countless generations. It's an extraordinary area. With the, the shipping coming through now, now you're placing the large, large vessels and industrial activity and the prospect of additional noise of discharges and seepages and, and emissions and pollution and so on. And the, you know, the even more frightening prospect of, of say, a some kind of a catastrophe, uh, which in remote and cold waters is a huge threat to life and limb. And then if there's something like an oil spill, it would just be devastating for that tremendous concentration of wildlife. Because of climate change, the sea ice has receded, creating a wider gap between land and dramatically increasing vessel traffic. This poses a threat to the balance of the ecosystem and to generational subsistence hunting. If the health of the ecosystem deteriorates, the subsistence way of life may not persist. This issue only emphasizes the reason why communication between scientists and indigenous peoples is key to avoiding disaster. 
I think if we're looking at things like the changes in sea ice or human changes like increases in shipping and so on, it's easy to identify the danger to life and limb. If you're out on the ice and it breaks off and drifts out, you, know, you could disappear and never be heard from again. I was talking with one hunter who had fallen through the ice, which had never happened to him before, but they were out seal hunting and, and the ice was thin enough that he, that he fell through. Fortunately, he was still around to talk about it, but not something he wanted to do again. A large ship going through an area where you have hunters out in you know, 18 or 20 foot open boats, it's not hard to see that under the wrong circumstances, you could have a collision or big enough wake to swamp one of the boats or something else. And you know, again, a threat to life and limb. I mean, those are in some ways easy to identify, maybe not necessarily easy to address, but you know, it seems like a, a more definable problem. When we talk about food security, that encompasses a, a huge range of things. So it's the well-being of the availability of the animals. Are there the, the fish, the marine mammals, and birds? Are they there? If they're there, great. Can you get to them? And that has increasingly become a problem for many communities with changes in ice, with changes in weather conditions, and so on. You know, the animals may be there, but getting the right conditions to get out and be able to hunt them, those conditions are becoming scarcer, and that puts a, a real limit on the ability of people to, to feed the fam their families the way that they'd like to. You can then get to the question of whether the animals are healthy and safe to eat. Uh, there's been a fair bit of coverage of the, the fact that there have been more harmful algal blooms in, in the Bering Strait and waters north of there in recent years. Now that so far has not caused a human health problem, but at some point are you taking animals that you need to be wary of because they might be you know, laced with some of the, the toxins that come from the harmful algal blooms. That obviously is a threat to the animals too, so you, know, you could be getting it in, in both ways. One, fewer animals and to a question of whether the animals you are able to get are safe to eat. A number of hunters have talked about finding seals or other animals that seem just they're not right. The blubber is the wrong color. They're too skinny. They have cysts or growths or something else that just doesn't look right and, and people are wary of. Add all of those things together and you have a real challenge to food security. The animals may be there, but they may not be, some of them may not be as abundant as before. Maybe harder to get to them. You know, if you throw in something like shipping, one of the effects of ship traffic is the animals that aren't really used to hearing that kind of noise may become skittish for a little while. I've had hunters tell me that you know, that can last for you know, a day or a, or a few days. If that happens once or twice and during a, a long hunting season, maybe that's not a big problem. But if the hunting season is now reduced to a few days and two of those days get thrown off because a ship has gone through and the animals are now behaving oddly, that could have a huge effect on, on your food security, on your ability to, to provide the foods that, that you want for your family, the, the nutritious foods that come from your waters. So the, the alternatives, yes, there are stores in communities and supplies come in by, by plane and by boat and so on, but you know, oftentimes those aren't as nutritious, aren't as desirable for local people and so on. And so it's not simply a matter of saying, oh, you know, if you can't get a seal, you, know, you can go to the store and buy, get a can of Spam or something. The seal has far more meaning and, and depth for the community, for the culture, for, for sharing, for tradition, and so on. And, and all of those are at risk if we're undermining food security. Within these shipping routes between the Arctic and the Pacific, vessels are increasingly transporting large amounts of natural gas through the Bering Strait. The high demand for natural gas creates a mounting pressure to open shipping routes for a longer period of time which expands the chances of spills and even changes animal behavior. This is something that Henry and the Ocean Conservancy monitor closely. Currently, a bigger source of traffic in the Arctic and one that will probably you know, continue and expand in the next 50 years is shipping to and from Arctic destinations. Now, I said there weren't big cities and markets, but what there are are many sources of natural resources. So if we look in Russia the, on the Yamal Peninsula, it's a huge source of natural gas. And so the Yamal 
LNG, liquid natural gas project, is already shipping large quantities of natural gas by ship. I think some goes to Europe and certainly a lot goes to to Asian markets. We're going to see a, a number of LNG carriers coming across northern Russia down through the Bering Strait and then and then heading off to East Asia. The Red Dog Mine in northwestern Alaska is a lead zinc mine that's been operating at least since the 80s. You know, and they have a, a number of ore carriers that are going back and forth during the shipping season and, and have been for for some time. Ships servicing the, the oil fields at Prudhoe Bay are coming through the Bering Strait and going around Alaska in the, in the summer to deliver supplies to, to Prudhoe Bay. And there's now talk of whether northern Alaska should start exporting liquid natural gas via ship uh, the way the Russians are doing. So I think we can expect more and more interest in, in that kind of shipping, more and more pressure to see that. One of the big questions is going to be, you know, the ice season is getting shorter, so the, you know, the open water shipping season is likely to get longer. A big question is, at, at what point uh, is this worth for the, for the shippers, uh, just going with ice-strengthened ships and being able to ship year-round? And that would be a huge change in the Bering Strait. At least in spring now, when the ice is there and the marine mammals are migrating north, that's not a particularly busy shipping season. There are a few icebreakers go through and research vessels and so on, but you know, not a huge amount of commerce fall is different when the marine mammals are coming south and the water's still open. Potentially, we could be seeing year-round shipping in, in much of the Arctic. We could also be seeing shipping going not on the northern sea route along the coast of northern Russia or through the Northwest Passage in Canada, but straight across the middle of the Arctic Ocean. If the summers become more and more ice-free, there's going to be nothing to stop a ship just driving straight by the North Pole and cutting yet a few more miles off of the transit. Now more ship traffic in an area that has seen very little over uh, you know, any part of recorded history. Now, in some ways, a bit of a scary prospect. In other ways, the question for us in the conservation world now is what can we do now to be ready when that happens? You know, there's some promise. If we look at the Bering Strait, the U.S. and Russia jointly proposed shipping lanes through the Bering Strait. These were proposed to the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, that regulates international shipping, and were adopted there. They're not mandatory, and if ice or other conditions dictate that a ship would be safer going outside the shipping lanes, they're going to do that. But these are now on the map and agreed to, and you know, a ship would have to have a pretty good reason for not following that. And those lanes are designed to keep shipping predictable, to keep it away from hazards like coastline and islands and so on. You know, and that seems like a welcome step. At the same time, the IMO adopted some areas to be avoided, or ATBAs, and these are places that ships shouldn't go. So, say, around St. Lawrence Island, home to the St. Lawrence Island Yupik people, many, many seabirds, lots of marine mammals, and so on, all in that vicinity. And there's no real reason for a ship to go near that unless they're delivering supplies to one of the two communities on the island. And so by the IMO saying, look, give this a wide berth, that's, again, a welcome step in trying to keep things away from St. Lawrence Island, away from a potential hazard that could, God forbid, lead to an oil spill or something like that. Unpredictable weather could steer ships off course, causing them to potentially veer dangerously close to local communities and islands where people travel on small fishing boats and animals stop to rest. It's important to create appropriate shipping lanes to prevent shipwreck and encourage environmental protection. You know, in this case, also working with Native peoples to understand what they'd like to see and what they think are the important areas that deserve protection. You know, one of the initial proposals was to go closer to King Island in the Bering Sea, and that used to be a settlement there. People have since left the island, but it remains very important for them culturally, and, and some people go back in the summers, and giving that a wider berth was something that was very important to the people from the area, and, and the Coast Guard listened to them and you know, moved the su- suggested shipping lane a little further away from the island, which is terrific. A bedrock U.S. maritime policy is freedom of navigation. You know, ships should be able to go 
to get from A to B and, and to travel where they want to within limits and avoiding hazards and unnecessary impacts and so on. Preserving freedom of navigation while also looking after the environment and the people is not always an easy task. But again, I give the Coast Guard credit for, for the effort that they put into doing that in the Bering Strait in the Arctic so far. The hard work of the scientists, the locals, the Coast Guard, and the Conservancy really helps keep the unforgiving Arctic landscape alive. The perspective of the sea ice may seem barren and empty to some, but to those who live there, it's something completely different. There's a beauty and honor in the Arctic way of life. And because of that, it's worth protecting. I I think back to a Sunday afternoon in January, many years ago, we were up in Barrow, Utkiakvik, and we were having a conversation with several elders about sea ice. We had a a group that was paying attention to sea ice through the winter and recording their observations and, and talking about various topics to do with sea ice and, and keeping track of that, all of which eventually made it into a, a book called The Meaning of Ice. One of the participants was the late Wesley Aiken. He just died recently, but a uh, wonderful, wonderful man. I said, well, Wesley, you know, when you think of sea ice, what comes to mind? And Wesley got a big smile on his face and said, sea ice is a beautiful garden. And what struck me was the power of that image, a beautiful garden. Who wouldn't want that? But also just the contrast between, for most of us, if we think of a beautiful garden, we think of a bunch of vegetables and plants and abundance and going out and picking things and and so on and so forth. The environment Wesley is describing, especially in January, but even later in the spring when the sun is shining, for most people on the planet is just cold and harsh and forbidding and merciless and anything (laughs) anything but a garden. The way that Wesley's view of that was, oh, that was the place where he found food, because you hunt seals and walrus and marine mammals and seabirds and, and so on out on the ice, where you find meaning, because all of those things are important for him, for his family, for culture, for, for sharing, and all of which combined that you know, sea ice for him was a wonderful place of abundance and joy and feeling, in much the same way that for most of us, having a, a nice vegetable garden brings out nice, warm, rosy feelings and so on. And so Wesley's ability to see that in sea ice to me was just such a, a wonderful image and a wonderful display of that difference in perspective and a, a reminder of how important it is for us to, to understand Wesley's perspective, to understand how the people see the ice, that they see this environment as home and, and something worth protecting and worth conserving and not just some desolate wasteland that you could put at risk for without a second thought. Despite all of the hardships that the Arctic has faced because of climate change, Henry understands that the indigenous communities will continue to push forward and adapt. But we still must do what we can in our own daily lives and through policy to protect as much of this wild landscape as possible before it's too late. You know, there's always the projection of when we're going to see an ice-free Arctic, and could well be that we're going to see an ice-free Arctic in my lifetime. What's interesting to me has been under you know, seeing more and more of the adaptability of the animals and of the of the people. Now, this is not to say that everything's going to be rosy, nothing to worry about. Um, no, that is not an excuse <laughs> for doing nothing. But I think the behavioral plasticity, if you want to use that term, or the adaptability or flexibility of, of many of the animals and the ability of uh, people in communities to ad- adapt and adjust is probably higher than, than we often give things credit for. Whether that's enough to deal with the changes in the Arctic, the long term is a, is a good question. In 
2015 or 16, a number of us were writing proposals for what became this Arctic Integrated Ecosystem Research Program in the Chukchi Sea. And at that point, we thought the grounds for the study were based on the idea that things were changing rapidly in that part of the world. Well, we got funded, we started the research, and then starting in 2017, things just have gone haywire, just been changed far faster than we, than we thought was going to be possible and sort of threw half of our assumptions out the window. Having said all that, I I think we can do what we can to give the animals and the communities the best shot they have of adjusting and and dealing with what's coming. And that includes things at a personal level of finding ways to conserve and to reduce and and reduce our own emissions. And then whatever we can to encourage uh, national and international policies that do the same. I realize that right now doesn't seem like a great time for that sort of thing. Uh, But to me, that makes it all the more important not to, you know, not to give up and not to rest, but to say this is coming it's happening. We can either sit back and be, be the victims of whatever comes our way, or we can try to get ahead of this and figure out what we can do to reduce the effects to give the any societies, not just ones in remote Arctic villages, but any societies anywhere in the world, the most flexibility and chance to be able to adjust in ways that aren't going to be hugely disruptive. From the Field is written and created by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn. Special thanks to our guest, Henry Huntington. If you enjoyed this episode or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list at fromthefieldpodcast.com, where you can receive notifications about behind-the-scenes photos, show notes, guest links, and more. From the Field is part of the Pila Case affiliate program. Pila Case is the world's first 100% compostable, eco-friendly phone case. I actually happen to have two of my own. If you'd like to learn more about how you can purchase an eco-friendly phone case, visit fromthefieldpodcast.com forward slash Pila Case. P-E-L-A-C-A-S-E. 